Welcome to the Den of Dissidents. This is a show where we challenge the current culture and mainstream talking points of the day. What is the news telling us? What is the culture telling us? Where is our civilization headed? And by what standard do we judge these issues? Are you a dissident? Let's find out. Welcome back to the Den of Dissidents. Today I have special guest Chuck Littleton. He's host of Teach Him Chuck. He has his own YouTube channel where he gives political and social commentary with deep research in an aggressive urban style. He's also a co-host of Cutting Through the Culture. And I have Chad Jackson, Dallas-based entrepreneur, researcher, and filmmaker of Uncle Tom 1 and 2, and also host of Cutting Through the Culture. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks, Thanks for coming for on. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. So I'm just going to jump right into it. MLK Day is coming up. I've seen a lot of um, your commentary talking about MLK, some of the research, Martin Luther King. Um, I wasn't aware of a lot of research, but I'm starting to dig in as far as who he was, the uh, civil rights movement and so forth. So here's the question. Um, we're taught that Martin Luther King was a great moral Christian leader that was fighting for civil rights. Um, were we taught the correct thing about Martin Luther King? Is he the man that we were taught he was? You want to go first, Chad? <laughs> I'll, uh, yeah, I'll go first. Um, the, the, the short answer is no. The, the short answer is no. Um, and I'll go directly to his own papers to prove this point. Um, fact number one, he did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, which the whole of Christianity is centered on the fact that Jesus was who he says he was or is, and that he died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity at all. And so someone who professes to be a pastor or a preacher of the Christian faith has to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. As early as the age of 12, Martin Luther King says that he reject the uh, notion or the belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, he considered himself to be an intellectual. His true passion was wanting to go and be a university professor. But he was advised to now go into the pastoralship, um, go into you know the church, be a pastor. You can make a lot of difference in that particular position. So he went into that position um, having a stronger uh, passion for Marxist ideology than he did, you know, seeing people and seeing souls being one to Christ. And so this is important to understand first and foremost, before you really get into, okay, well, what was his actual agenda um, as the, you know, so-called leader of this civil rights movement? If, if not to win individual souls of Christ, what in fact was his agenda? And I think um, we're going to unfold that answer as the, as this particular podcast progresses. Right. Yeah. I second that Chad, um, you know, just to take it a step or two further, King even viewed, you know, once again, like Chad mentioned, you know, you can go and, uh, you know, read his work, his papers 
online, I think, you know, you can probably <laughs> get to all of them, quite frankly, uh, free of charge. They're out there. I think, what is it, Chad? I think the uh, Stanford Press. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, just so going back to what Chad was saying, just to take it a step or two further, he even thought that the idea that Christ was divine in an ontological sense, meaning that the divine nature of Christ was, you know, inherent uh, in his being, he uh, viewed that to be detrimental to man's development. See, like Chad mentioned, you know, uh, as far as uh, Dr. King in his uh, adherence to these Marxist philosophies, of course, you know, we'll probably get, you know, more so into the uh, philosophical background of this particular uh, line of thinking. But, you know, it centers around this notion of perfecting society. And of course, if you must uh, perfect society, first and foremost, you have to perfect man. And if you consider the fact that, you know, Christ was uh, divine and separate from man in a way that uh, a pretty much man could never be uh, in his mind, uh, that was a, a hindrance to a man sort of fulfilling his true potential. OK, mm -hmm. so, you know, you have to, to separate, uh, you know, God uh, from everyone else. And according to King uh, at the time in the 1950s, and of course, he you know, kept this, you know, with him, you know, until his death in 1968. It's not like he changed his beliefs. Uh, but he believed that what made Christ divine was his feverish adherence to the commands of his God, his father. And so you too, as a human being, can be essentially divine if you would have that same level of commitment to uh, do uh, what is moral, what is just, and what is righteous. Of course, that would, you know, uh, take on a sort of subjective nature uh, because you would have to ask or at least try to do your research into what Dr. King believed to uh, get a sense of uh, what that meant to him, what it meant to be righteous, and what it meant to be uh, moral. Uh, it certainly wasn't uh, in line with the uh, teachings of the Bible, it was more so in line with the uh, teachings of the uh, social gospel, which is, of course, a a heretical uh, perversion of the gospel. Right. Yeah, I it's was, a subversion. Yeah, I was reading that, um, in I think in the, on the Stanford site, he um, there was a paper in which he wrote about the divinity of Christ, and um, um, a portion of it reads that. Um, King dismisses the conception of an inherent divinity in Jesus and concludes, quote, the true significance of the divinity of Christ lies in the fact that his achievement is prophetic and promissory for every other true son of man who is willing to submit his will to the will of the spirit of God. And um, I think it also said something like Christ wasn't always divine. No, yes, he he didn't believe that Christ was always right. divine. What made divine? I mean, you just pretty much alluded to it, Rashad there that yeah, what what made him divine was his the his acts and and what he was able to do and what he was able to uh, accomplish. Right? He wasn't you know metaphysically bestowed with this kind of divinity that we you know associate with you know <clears throat> with God or yeah. you know mm -hmm. these things that are godly. So yeah. 
I think I, I walked away reading um, a portion of that, think saying that, concluding that he what he's saying is that um, if you too can be like Christ, if you submit to the will of God, or you you can be another Christ, just like Christ submitted his will, he became that's when he became divine. So if you right. submit to God, you can become divine. Right. In a sense, that's what so I was what, what are your yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Rashad? Oh, I think it's um I guess I'd say heretical. I mean, <laughs> definitely um not what scripture says. I mean, he, you know, Christ was divine. He's the right. uh, the I am, you know. Um yeah, I mean, because it's interesting. I mean, even whenever Jesus is is born, um, I think it's in uh, the Gospel of Mark, if I'm not mistaken. I, I could be wrong. Um, sometimes I get the different, the four Gospels uh, mixed up in terms of who said what. But there were two elderly people who came to Mary and and basically talked about how this is the Messiah who has come and is you know going to fulfill the scriptures so to speak so from from his inception jesus was always divine it wasn't you know something that happened later in his life that goes without saying but uh i don't know to, to take it back to your question your original question about what was it that martin the king believed was he this great pastor that everybody believes that he was again this is a long way of just saying no he he was not and that's important to that's important to note because when when it comes to Martin Luther King in particular, um, it's interesting, and, and I think Chuck gets this too all the time when he talks about Martin Luther King and who he really was and what he really believed. The number one pushback you get from people is, well, you know, none of us are really perfect, right? It, no, no, nobody's really perfect, and so th this right. is their way of saying that uh, even if he was really marxist or even if he was really an adulterer or really even if he really was this you know this person no but none of us are really perfect you have to look at the good side of him you have to look at the speeches that he gave you have to look at what he did in this country for civil rights and all the things that that's what we remember him for not for the other stuff but the but the reality is when it comes to martin Luther king it's not a simple matter of him being imperfect like all of us are the fact is he was a deceiver Right. He professed to be a man of the cloth, a shepherd of, the, of God's flock, so to speak. So he was able to do this subversive thing while deceiving people. Um, and he was very mindful and very knowledgeable of what it was he was doing. He wasn't duped. He wasn't in the dark. He wasn't merely a pawn, although he really was. But, you know, he, he understood full well what he was doing. He, he knew he was deceiving people. And that, in my opinion, and not only in my opinion, but according to the scriptures is a, is a true and high offense because the bible says that those who profess us to be teachers will be judged more harshly mm. so this is something that we have to take into consideration well, well can i what about say summer shot yeah go ahead uh, i just wanted to add too that you know just echoing the sentiments of his father when you know his his father spoke about his ministry uh, he said that, you know, that that his ministry was concerned with man's lot in this life. OK, 
And like Chad was speaking about, you know, the reason why this is so troubling for someone who professes to be not just a Christian, but a man of the cloth, who, of course, like Chad just said, will be uh, judged more harshly. Um, again, you, you can kind of see this this link. And then for those who try to deny, for example, that, you know, uh, Dr. King was a member of the Communist Party or was a small C communist in terms of his ideology, you know, they want to deny it and say this and say that, but you don't have to necessarily come out and profess to be that in order to be that. As a matter of fact, you know, you learn uh, up front, you know, the, the tactics of subversion. Of course, someone in Dr. King's position would never openly admit to being such a thing. Uh, and you know this, of course, because we have the uh, personal testimonies in the sense of those who were close to King and who were around him, who said that uh, MLK gave them uh, explicit instruction not to detail, uh, you know, exactly, you know, who he was and, and, and his, his political and his social philosophy. But again, and the reason why that is so contradictory and antithetical to Christianity is because this whole, this notion of a, a social gospel uh, it what it does is it does exactly what those who criticize, uh, you know, our, our system of uh, uh, or, or, or our free market economic system. I put it that way to say things, you know, that, that you know, it, it promotes greed. It, it, it does this. It does that. But in fact, that the ones who are criticizing our free market system are the ones who have taken man and reduced him to a material animal. Uh, but on the flip side of that, you know, as far as Christianity is concerned, Christianity is concerned with the whole of the man, but first and foremost, Christianity is not so much concerned with his material lot, but Christianity and the salvation of man is concerned, of course, with his soul and with his, you know, with, with his spirit. Uh, you know, all men are, are equal in the eyes of God and nowhere else. And when you start talking about, you know, a temporal life or this finite life, uh, you know, when you start talking about things such as you know, inequality and the rich versus the poor and all this stuff, we'll get into that because, you know, that was a part of uh, uh, Dr. King's uh, shtick. Uh, but again, you know, people like him, this is the type of stuff that they promote whilst calling themselves Christian when, in fact, man are equal in the eyes of God in terms of his soul. But that but nowhere else. Mm -hmm. And so you, you, you can see how. Uh, uh, how, you know, heterodox, you know, how much of a, of a heterodox type of uh, principle this is, because it turns man into nothing more than a material animal. It reduces him. Mm, okay. Um, Chad, you said that he was a deceiver. And I think I've watched one of your videos where you say he was involved with some nefarious activities. Now, people <clears throat> from the outside looking in who have basically no knowledge of this side of MLK are probably like flabbergasted at what you're saying. So what, how was he intentionally deceiving people? What, what were his nefarious ways? That goes to both of you. Well, people um, mistake the whole nonviolent tactic as being something that originated with Martin Luther King. This couldn't be further from the truth. Um, I'm going to say that and then give it to Chuck and then I'm going to pick back off of what Chuck uh, says, if, if you want to take it from there, Chuck. Just the, the whole civil rights movement kind of being predicated on this this tactic of nonviolence. Um, yeah. 
I think Chuck can speak to that part of it better than I can, but then I want to take it back off of that. Well, you know, yes. Well, he, you know, he used this, uh, you know, tactic of uh, non, well, he used a tactic of violence by promoting nonviolence because of course he wanted the, uh, you know, media to capture images of, you know, himself and his followers, uh, many of whom, if not most, were uh, teenagers and, and young adults. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because they, you know, scoured the country, you know, looking for young, impressionable teens who were uh, participating in these in these protests uh, to the chagrin of their adult parents. There's just another side note that many people don't know is that uh, the civil rights movement or or groups like the Su Southern Christian Leadership Conference in particular had a very difficult time uh recruiting adults to their ranks you know they were just too busy living life and doing whatever it is that they were doing but again you know it, it was so de deceptive this whole tactic of nonviolence, because you know dr king wanted uh himself again and, and his young uh, followers to be seen as these victims to be abused and to be beaten and 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 you know of course his idea was to and i think i think this was a, a quote of mlk's that you know allow these images we want these images to go around the world so people can you know see our plight and, and see the way in which uh you know the united states is uh is abusing us and, and mistreating us and oppressing us and so you're kind of damned if you do damned if you don't because when the the state uh responds uh in kind to your uh social disruption then of course you know they are made to look like the bad guys uh this uh tactic uh, was outlined i know i was sifting through uh your your you know, some of your episodes Rashad, and i saw i think you had an episode way back when you spoke with g edward griffith and uh you know g edward griffith uh he he highlights this uh in his uh 1982 documentary called uh, no place to hide uh the uh tactics of uh what is it called the uh, tactics of terrorism and uh, he talks about this you know and and so yeah so i mean again you know he mlk was a deceiver in, in many ways but when you're talking about nonviolence, uh in particular i mean you know mm. that speaks to it for okay. sure. Chad, you said you wanted to say something. I'm going to chime in right mm -hmm. after you. Yeah. So um, on the whole nonviolence front, um, again, as Chuck, as Chuck said, and I can't, I couldn't have said it any better myself. This is why I deferred to him um, to, to talk about that angle of it. Um, when you look at the whole concept of the whole Freedom Riders and SNCC and how like they are the true um, individuals who are able to make uh, the whole Martin Luther King being enshrined in American folklore possible. Without them, there would be no Martin Luther King. Without Stanley Levison, there would be no Martin Luther King. Without Bayard Rustin, there would be no Martin Luther King. These are the individuals who were able to um, assist with making him this kind of force to be reckoned with. Uh, Stanley Levison was the proverbial, you know, publicist for Martin Luther King. He was the one who, um, who originated the idea of starting the LCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. I think last time uh, you interviewed me, Rashad, um, I had mentioned, I think that briefly, and I also mentioned the Southern, or I'm sorry, 
the National Baptist Convention, which was led by Mr. Joseph H. Jackson. And I, I, I misspoke last time. I said he was born in 1915. He was actually born in 1900. He was born in 1900, so he would have been 15 years old when Booker T. Washington died. He died in 1990, which was the year that I was born. So I, I you know, slip over the tongue. But the black masses, especially in the South, overwhelmingly embraced not only Joseph H. Jackson, but the teaching, the teachings of Joseph H. Jackson, which were, you know, uh, true and faithful to the orthodoxy of the scriptures, the fundamental principles of the scriptures. He preached repentance and being born again and individual salvation and, and how it's on the person, on the individual to make Christ your Lord um, after having repented. This, these are the things that Joseph H. Jackson taught. And Martin Luther King and his contingent, they wanted to, in a sense, oust Joseph H. Jackson and posture you know, my, Martin Luther King's contingent as the leaders of the National Baptist Convention because they thought that by doing this, they can, in a sense, subvert the convention to being more um, um, in line with the social gospel as opposed to the fundamental gospel. Uh, but they were unsuccessful in doing this because uh, Jackson stayed the president of the convention well into the 80s. And so that gives you an idea of what uh, particularly black Southerners, uh, black Christian Southerners, uh, where they were theologically and otherwise. Um, and so after having been kicked out of the convention, Stanley Levison, who was a white Jewish, you know, communist, um, very well connected, very wealthy. Um, he, he, it was his idea to start something called the Southern Leadership Conference. And they later changed the name to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference um, to give Martin Luther King a platform that's backed by a organization that that has a stake in the in the game, so to speak, uh, when it comes to civil rights for blacks in America. You, you needed to have some kind of organization in order to be taken seriously. Right. And so um, and so, again, a lot of what the SCLC was doing and SNCC, which was a, you know, kind of a little sister of the SCLC, was all meant to kind of give this facade that we are an organization that is truly concerned for civil rights for black folks and is truly trying to fight this uh, white supremacist regime in the South. And, you know, the Freedom Riders were also a part of this and they came down. And they demonstrated marches and all these things without pulling permits, without doing the necessary things that groups would ordinarily do in order to make a point and do their demonstration and then go home. Uh, as Chuck said, they would go and recruit folks from, you know, kids from high schools and from colleges, young youngsters, get them involved in the movement and, you know, strategically tell them, you know, wear your Sunday dress. You know what I mean? Come off as though you are doing no one any harm. And they were going into these places knowing full well what they were actually doing. And the whole point of this is they knew that these local governor, these local governments, the sheriff's departments, so on and so forth, will implement uh, force if need be to try to disperse these crowds and get these unlawful crowds and get them to, you know, uh, break up and stop stopping traffic and all the things. And as soon as this would happen, the cameras would roll and these images would be 
on the front pages of the newspapers around the world. And that would, in a sense, pull on the heartstrings of the masses and win more and more numbers to the cause of civil rights. Mm -hmm. The idea being that this is how blacks are being treated regularly on a daily basis in the South, not not knowing that the whole thing was a dramatization. It was theatrics to get people to move a certain way. Um, and so and so again, these are these are tried and true tactics, Marxist tactics that have worked for a very long time. And what Martin Luther King was doing was no different than than the way that these have been tried and, and successful in the past. Mm. And so when people look at the conditions, quote unquote conditions and the hoses and the dogs and the this and the that, um, this is what they think of when it comes to understanding why Martin Luther King was necessary. He was necessary because we were treated so badly in the South. When the reality is the same way that they dispersed these crowds of black youngsters was the same way that they dispersed other predominantly white crowds in, in unions and strikes and things of that nature. They got the dogs out. They got the hoses out. Same thing. Uh, but but again, we we think of black folks and we think that, it you know, black person could even walk down the street without white folks, you know, coming after them with dogs. And like, this is what we have. This is the image that we have in our minds. Um, so, again, it's uh, it, it's. It's it's um, I c I could go on obviously, but yeah. it's um, these are the things that that make Martin Luther King heroic in, in a lot of our eyes because this is what we've been taught in our schools. Mm. Hey, Rashad, before you chime, before you chimed in, before you yeah. chime back in, just very quickly, like Chad, you know, he mentioned <clears throat> Stanley Levison, and I would encourage people to look into Stanley Levison. He was, you know, part of the. Uh, legal counsel for the uh, Rosenbergs, the infamous uh, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. You know, he was actually introduced to MLK in 1956 by Bayer Rustin, who joined the Young Communist League sometime during the 1930s. And so, you know, again, it's, it's this tangled web they weave. And he brought up Schnick. Of course, Schnick is seen as the uh, student wing of the uh, SELC. And then Schnick pretty much wouldn't have gotten off the ground, quite frankly, without the um, uh, uh, help or the, or the or the vision of the foresight of uh, Ella Baker, and behind Ella Baker was, of course, none other than Howard Zinn, another uh, member of the uh, Communist Party. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, he denies this, but uh, you know, this was uh, disclosed to the FBI that Zinn was, in fact, a member of the Communist Party. You know, he would attend all of these conferences and, and concerts of, uh, you know, Paul Robeson and so on and so forth. And so Howard Zinn was actually the mastermind. Ella Baker was the face, but Howard Zinn was the mastermind for the uh, formulation of the, uh, uh, of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Howard Zinn was the mastermind behind the creation of that organization. And Mm -hmm. Stanley Levinson was uh, he was subpoenaed to testify before the Senate uh, Subcommittee on Internal Affairs in 1962. And last time I checked, I believe to this day, much of his Senate testimony is still classified. So wow. those are the people behind the uh, so-called civil rights movement. Right. Okay. I, I remember watching a video by um, Art Thompson, who's the uh, CEO of the John Birch Society, and he was talking about mm -hmm. the civil rights era. And he said some of the tactics that were being used was he gave an example of um, a woman dressed as a nun and a guy dressed as a priest. 
and they'd be sitting on the court steps or standing on court steps. And then they would start performing a lewd act for the purpose of attracting law enforcement. So they would start performing this lewd act. And then all of a sudden the cops would come over and break them up, you know, and say, Hey, what are you guys doing? This is, you know, you're in public. And so you would see the cop fighting with the nun and the priest. And then all of a sudden the cameras would start rolling. And then the headlines read cops beating priests and nuns, you know? Right. So that was the first time I heard something like that. So when you're talking about these events being um, staged, um, it, it brought that back to memory. So some people. But the thing about it, Rashad, not to cut you off, the thing about it is like even saying what you just said, like people think that that's unfathomable, that it's inconceivable that people will go to those depths in order to uh, influence public opinion. Mm. Um, people don't think that they are capable of being fooled. They think that what they see on TV is truth, is gospel, is fact. Same thing with the whole George Floyd thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we all saw what happened in 2020 when that eight minute, 46 second clip was released into the social media ether. Um, it caused a reverberation around the world, uh, protests, looting, rioting, uh, corporations, uh, hiring and complete, like starting completely new, uh, uh, completely new DEI departments and government legislation and things of this nature, uh, right. all based on that clip. And then by the time the truth was, you know, could put his shoes on, um, where it wasn't, where we, we learned that, you know, based on the autopsy, it wasn't. Derek Chauvin, who actually killed George Floyd, when we learned the truths of the whole situation, it was only, the, you know, the, the damage was already done. So, again, people don't think that they're capable of being fooled uh, when it comes to the church bombings uh, in the middle part of the 20th century, where for most of them, they still haven't found the arsons. And in fact, uh, it, as it turns out, in some of those cases, it was actual black pastors who were setting fire to their own churches and then blaming it on the Klan. Um, when it comes to the fact that the Klan did or that the Klan was also influenced by uh, by communists in some cases, not all, but in some. Uh, when it comes to time and again, all of these kind of subversive tactics, people think that, oh, well, that's just hogwash. I know what I saw. I know what I learned in school. I know about the dogs and the hoses and the things of this nature. It's it's for this reason that they think that the civil rights movement was necessary while the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was necessary and while we must continue to to hold people like Martin Luther King in such high esteem. Some people I like elders might be hearing this, uh, my grandfather, he grew up during that time. So anytime we have a discussion about these things, he, he always says his response is always, I was there. I was there. I saw it all. <laughs> so what do you say to people that say, well, Chad, what do you mean? Um, this was theatrics, you know, dogs were being sick on black people and we were suffering at this time. What do you mean that this was just, um, a show so that, uh, Martin Luther King could step in didn't we need martin luther king didn't we need some civil rights because we couldn't use water fountains and go into this restaurant this this and that didn't we need a mlk i was there <laughs> how do you uh, respond to that Jay, you wanna address address you? uh i know um, i know chuck wanted to say something but i would just i would just ask your grandfather i was just ask your you know 
your grandfather, as I have other elder, you know, people who are baby boomers and would have been born around this time is what have you personally experienced in the past that was so egregious and so racist that it traumatized you to the extent that you felt like we needed a civil rights movement? Um, I, I would simply ask that question. Um, because I would I would venture to say that his own anecdotal personal experiences are at odds with what he would have been seeing on the black and white television at that time. I would venture to say that could be wrong, but I would will, I would be willing to put money on it. Uh, go ahead, Chuck. No, I just I think uh, I don't know if, um, you know, we'll well, I guess I mean, I'm introducing it now. and I don't want to take us in a, in a different direction if, if Rashad doesn't want to go here. But I just think that uh, we we miss out on, on a huge opportunity to really, really get into exactly what we mean by this term civil rights. Of course, you know, the tactics and the, the, the players and the events and all that stuff and the people that were involved and, you know, MLK being like, you know, the centerpiece of this whole thing. Um, but I think it is important. I think for us to to really unpack this whole idea and this whole concept of civil rights, we keep using it over and over again. And I think that, you know, it it we are doing we aren't doing ourselves any favors as people when we, you know, because one person, when they mention civil rights, they can mean one thing and then someone else, you know, can use the exact same term and they can mean something entirely different. And so, you know, people are kind of talking past one another. I think um we, we really need to uh, unpack exactly what this whole concept of, of civil rights, I mean, what does it actually mean? I mean, you know, people think about civil rights, they think about, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but of course, you know, 100 years prior, you have the Civil Rights Act of, 18, of 1866. Now, the whole, the whole term civil, of course, it originates with the uh, Roman term Cephas. And Cephas uh, loosely translates in English as city or, or one who is a city dweller. In the political centers uh, uh, in Greece at, at the time uh, were called, you know, the Greek city states. This kind of, you know, decentralized kind of uh, concept of, you know, a, a, a small kind of group of, of property owning individuals who had a say so and how their laws were created, how they were, you know, enacted, and how these laws were carried out. And so, when you when you th when you think about these terms like civil rights, again, we're building on this long-standing uh, Western tradition of philosophical development in terms of what it actually means to be a quote-unquote citizen. This is where we get the again the whole term Cephas, civic citizen, civilization. All of these uh, terms stem from the uh, Greco-Roman term word concept of the city dweller, uh, because this whole notion of a citizen was this thing that was uh, unique uh, to the West. Uh, and so when you fast forward all the way uh, to the late 19th century, uh, what you're talking about when you're talking about civil rights are you're talking about the rights of the citizen. Now, after you know the civil war right you know everything you know we're, folks were trying to figure out politicians etc how do we integrate right newly freed slaves into the uh, uh the general population now that they are free what rights uh, should they have as, as citizens or you know or, or or they should have the rights of any other citizen and so 
the whole point, I'll try to make it make it brief, because, again, you're talking about a lot of a lot of history, you know, you're unpacking a lot of different ideas and things of that nature. But of course, by 1866, Abraham Lincoln's vice, his Democrat vice president, Andrew Johnson, had, uh, you know, taking, you know, he, he, had, he had, you know, assumed the, the role of, of commander in chief because of Lincoln's assassination. And in 1866, the Republican dominated Congress introduced the Civil Rights Act of 1866 that President Johnson eventually vetoed because, again, this particular piece of legislation was meant to supplement the 13th Amendment because the attitude of the Republican Party at the time was that what good is the 13th Amendment if these oppressed blacks cannot avail themselves of their benefits? And so we need more kind of statutory legitimacy in order to make the uh, 13th Amendment work to make it a thing. And uh, President Johnson vetoed it again. If you all are familiar with the history, you know, he was eventually uh, uh, impeached mm -hmm. uh, for his uh, his unwillingness to to go along uh, with the uh, uh, Republican agenda, quite frankly. And again, you mentioned the John Birch Society. You know, I learned a ton from the John Birch Society in terms of how much of the uh, quite frankly if we're being honest with one another uh we aren't you know being total partisans uh the republican party was really a party uh run amok during that time right uh and andrew johnson he vetoed the bill but the the the, the, the key thing here is is that you know um president john I'm, I'm smiling thinking about it because president johnson vetoed the bill vetoed the bill uh, un under the the uh, with with the understanding that uh, the market, he said, would take care of it. And it's very interesting when you consider the fact that, again, this is the 1860s. And Andrew Johnson said, no, you know, pretty much let the market take care of it. Let the people sort themselves out as they see fit. We mustn't, uh, you know, allow the uh, federal government to involve itself in matters and matters that are uh, constitutionally uh non-permissible right right outside the uh the, the framework outside the uh the uh, purview of the federal government and of course you know he was eventually uh uh you know his veto congress overrode his veto and then they went for uh you know took the article five route and eventually amended the constitution once again to add the 14th amendment so the civil rights act of 1866 was the sort of predecessor to the 14th amendment which was the predecessor to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, or even to go back even further to the 1950s, which again, people look at the, that particular legislation, but from a judiciary, from, the, from, from a judiciary point of view, some say the civil rights era sort of began with the Brown v. Board of Education decision of 1954, yeah. which again, we champion that. You're like, oh, man, that's great. That's phenomenal. That's wonderful. But again, you had another example of judicial activism with the Brown v. Board of Education decision, because even at the time, and of course, they hearken back to the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. But nowhere did the uh, original authors of the 14th Amendment intend for the states not to have the uh, legal right to segregate their schools. Again, before we ask ourselves is something moral or is something more socially desirable 
when you're talking about maintaining our republic, we must first ask ourselves, not is it desirable, but is it constitutionally permissible? Mm -hmm. And the reality is that the intent of the 14th Amendment was not to allow the federal government to control the educational system of the states, particularly when you consider the fact that the states that voted to ratify the 14th Amendment were practicing school segregation at the time. Okay, the federal government has no business uh, in the business of educating or, you know, yeah. of education. And so I'm saying it along with the way, right, again, um, and, and, and this is part of the whole, when we're talking about deception and how MLK and the rest of them, uh, you know, uh, deceive, the, uh, deceive the people and, and, and have actually taken more of our, our rights away again. You know, the, the rights of the states to control and govern their schools as they see fit is a right that is guaranteed to them by way of the 10th Amendment. OK, and so civil rights, quite frankly, are simply so-called rights that any given person at any given time deems politically or socially desirable. Right. But they really have no basis, if you will, in the superior principle of natural rights, which, of course, natural rights were created by God and, quote unquote, civil rights are created by man. And I and I worded that very, very strategically. And, I, you know, and, and there's no word in that in that sentence that I just said there is superficial because notice. I said, you know, God, you know, he created, right? He, he's, he's the author of natural rights, but man is, is the author of civil rights in that natural rights are just this stagnant concrete thing. It's this internal truth from which we draw in order to solve modern day problems. We look to the past to solve the problems that we are confronted with today, but civil rights are created by man in that man continues to evolve and expound upon what he believes are these so-called civil rights. But these civil rights, un unfortunately, run afoul to the superior kind of rights that were created by God once and for all that we refer to as natural rights. Civil rights are a bastardization of natural rights. Mm, okay. So when most people hear uh, civil rights, the term civil rights, like, you know, the baby boomers and such, they're thinking, mm -hmm. hey, I'm a black man, black woman. I just want to be able to go to this water fountain. I just want to be able to learn in this school or go to this restaurant. It's so not that's a right. Okay. That's well, not a right. I because again, I, 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 know, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, Rashani. You're playing devil's advocate because you're saying, you know, what if they ask? But see, what people fail to realize is that inherent within the definition of the word right see what is a right to you becomes someone else's obligation mm -hmm. and so therein lies the question right where do your rights end and my rights begin okay well and so and that's i'm sorry go ahead Chuck. go ahead go ahead check i'll let you take it Chad. i feel like i've been talking to you i think you want no, to no. well i was you're, gonna you're ask absolutely this. right i'm sorry go ahead uh but, yeah before you chimed in i was gonna ask so what rights did blacks not have that Martin Luther King was trying to restore? Because some people are saying that we needed civil rights to be incorporated into American society. So what rights 
did blacks or were they stripped of before the Civil Rights Act? Like, were we just we couldn't do anything? Well, that question is difficult to answer without acknowledging everything that Chuck just laid out. Yeah. Um, namely that, you know, uh, where, where does where does your another person's rights end and where does yours begin? And the fact of the matter is when asked, what couldn't you do as a child uh, that white people could do? Martin Luther King's answer was that I couldn't um, I couldn't go to a store and buy a hamburger, or a cup of coffee. Um, you know, to some of the, the stores that were whites only. And so the fact that, that that leads me to ask the question of if I am a white storekeeper and I put my own money up and I started this business this and the third, um, do I not have the right to determine who I can and can't hire, who I will and will not serve? Um, that's That's, I think, something that should be left to the free market. And I make this point all the time that, you know, we should be able to conduct our small businesses in a, in a way that we see fit, unabated or unintruded by the federal government. Um, what a lot of these so-called Jim Crow laws were was either a, a county or state um, um, intrusion into how businesses are ran, who they can and can't serve, what doors blacks or whites can and can't go through, uh, who where a white or black person can and can't sit in a theater, this, that, and a third. To me, I think that is also unconstitutional um, for a state government to dictate uh, these kind of things within the free market. And so uh, the way that it was gone about, in my opinion, was all wrong. Um, you get into, uh, at some point, taxation. And if the plurality of a given local community decide that, okay, uh, this percentage of our property taxes or whatever is going to the schools and the school board or school administrators say, okay, well, we are going to have whites only schools that get a higher percentage of the tax dollars than these black schools. Uh, that becomes an issue for that local community to resolve. And so that you kind of get into some thick weeds into and trying to determine the constitutionality of the way these funds are allocated, this, that, and the third. But these issues were already being resolved well before the civil rights movement, well before Martin Luther King and everyone came onto the scene. These things were working themselves out um, because people were growing familiar with each other uh, as Booker T. Washington predicted to the extent that you put your best foot forward, you uh, work on yourself and work on your own culture. Everybody else will see it. And these walls of prejudice will begin to break down. This is exactly what was happening. However, when you factor in the communist uh, uh, tactics, these Marxist tactics of agitation and propaganda, uh, what these do is they create more friction. As Julia Brown said, they reopen old wounds and to the extent that you have friction people will want to distance themselves from you not join together with you mm. and so when you have friction on the one hand which intensifies uh you know uh, uh race relations or the the negativity of of race relations um and on the on the other hand you have this mass push for federal regulation federal legislation to do something about it for the federal government to compel people to act a certain way or to do a certain thing, 
that only makes the agitation and that only makes the frustrations all the more strong. And a lot of people realize this. This is the reason why Bob Woodson left the civil rights movement. He says that they were interested in federal, uh, uh, what's the word? Federal integration. Mm -hmm. He said, I wasn't interested in federal integration. I was interested in desegregation. I was interested in the states not having the right from a legislative uh, uh, point of view to dictate and mandate who these businesses can and can't serve. If the business on the local, on the ground level wants to discriminate, that should be their right. But for the state to uh, compel people to discriminate, or for the federal government to come in and to uh, and to say and, and to basically shove the state out of the way, and then they impose or compel the private business to act a certain way, both are unconstitutional. Okay. And I know that doesn't directly answer your question as to what rights did blacks and whites not have, uh, but I, I at the same time, um, I in a way I don't think that's the right question because it it. it and, and and you can tell me if you don't if, mm -hmm. if I'm confusing the matter, but to me, it, it doesn't acknowledge the fact that when it comes to on the ground level, how we interact with each other, the government shouldn't have a say in it one way or the other, unless I'm stealing your property, I'm I'm threatening your life or strangling you, whatever the case may be. Um, the government shouldn't have a say in how I treat you um, or how I speak to you or whether I do or don't serve you, gotcha. if that makes sense. Okay. Um, yeah, I got a few more points I want to touch on just for the sake of time. But yeah, I mean, when you look at, um, I guess, some of the gender or, you know, the, the, the rainbow push right. and you incorporate the Civil Rights Act into that whole agenda, you know, now it's like people are saying, well, you know, if you have a church, you, you can't discriminate according to the Civil Rights Act. If, if, uh, if a guy wants to preach in your church and he has a dress and some lipstick on, you can't discriminate against him, you know? Um, so people, I, I keep hearing this. People say, have said that Martin Luther King was a Republican. His father was a Republican. <laughs> and I can never find evidence of that. That's one. And secondly, another thing that surprised me was I found out that uh, MLK got a an award from Planned Parenthood. Could Planned you guys touch mm -hmm. on that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he did. Uh, yeah, he did receive the inaugural. Jeez, uh, uh, why am I forgetting the woman's name? Margaret uh, Sanger. Margaret Sanger. Yeah, the inaugural uh, Margaret Sanger <clears throat> award. He wasn't present to receive it. Um, his right wife received it in his place, and uh, you know she. Uh, you can go online and actually uh, read the uh, speech she gave when she accepted the award on his behalf. Uh, but yeah. You know, and and, and again, it, it reminds me when you when you bring that up, uh, just this whole the whole link between the two, you know, uh, Margaret Sanger, of course, she was another fellow traveler. Uh, again, you know, whether these people call themselves communist or not, you know, communism, fascism, all of these different isms, they all fall under the, the umbrella of this statist ideology, you know, and they all you know, refer to themselves as uh, as progressives. And, you know, Margaret Sanger being a progressive, uh, she too made her sojourn to the uh, Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, she in encouraged and, and gave the uh, Soviets 
the, the blueprint on, you know, on, on different types of, uh, you know, family planning, quote unquote, uh, strategies. And uh, what she said is that, you know, pretty much kind of like the same sentiment you hear from uh, the uh, left today, which is that to kill a child in the wounds, almost like an act of mercy. Because why bring a child into a world filled with so much injustice, particularly economic injustice? And this was Margaret Sanger's uh, attitude at the time in the 1920s that, you know, when it came to the Soviet Union, she said that the uh, Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union was the first country on record to legalize abortion. And over a 10 year span, it went so poorly that they reversed course immediately. Anyway, that's a whole nother story. But she um, she would say that that this is what the Soviet Union must do. And I'm paraphrasing her until they have pretty much amassed enough power and, you know, perfected the society through government planning in such a way that there would be no need uh, for abortions because everyone would be more than willing to have a child because the state uh, would be uh, well equipped or equipped enough to handle the burden of providing for however many children that the uh, Soviet people wanted to have. And so until the government has the requisite powers necessary to provide adequate you know, you, and now that has just broadened, right? We're talking adequate housing. They need adequate medicine. Everyone needs adequate food. Everything is a right, 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 right. And until we get that in order, then abortion just, it just, it, it has to be. Uh, because, you know, we can only, you know, we as a society, we can, you know, we can only uh, take on so much. Yeah. So when you, when you, when you said that, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm like you, Rashad. I, I've never found evidence to suggest that MLK was a Republican. But when it's all said and done, when you think about it, particularly during that era with the Republican Party, uh, it pretty much wouldn't have mattered much because sort of like now, I mean, it was true back then. And again, you know, there are these brief respites, uh, you know, when it comes to the Republican Party, at least on a national scale. Uh, where they tend to be, you know, and, and you'll see this embodied, of course, in, in particular presidents or even in, in, in certain senators and so on. But the the overall attitude of the Republican Party during this time in the 1950s was, was almost indistinguishable from the attitudes of the Democrat Party. Uh, and this goes all the way back to how the uh the 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 fdr era had really really done a number not just on society but on our political system as well where the republican party took up this attitude that well if pretty much if you can't beat them join them but what we need to do is that as opposed to what the democrats are doing we we're going to use the federal person we're going to use federal power to implement a quote-unquote conservative agenda now of course you can see how going contradictory that is because the entire premise of conservatism as an ideology should not be to implement more laws to pursue a conservative agenda you must repeal laws mm. in order to pursue a conservative agenda because conservatism in my humble opinion is uh should be more you know about of course the the citizenry but and i'm, I'm just a couple more points and i'm going um at the time in the 1950s um uh, Dwight Eisenhower, and this is a famous quote of his that when it comes, quote, when it comes to economic issues, I am conservative. 
But when it comes to human issues, I am a liberal, unquote. Even Vice President uh, Richard Nixon under Dwight Eisenhower at the time would say similar things that we need to pursue, sort of like what George Herbert Walker Bush did uh, after Reagan's second term is, you know, we need to, you know, one of his his campaign slogan was a kinder, gentler America. Because we need to move away from the harshness and the and the you know the wild cowboy era that was Ronald Reagan. You had the exact same thing in the 1950s with the Republican Party. Again, this was mm. the attitude of Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon. And lastly, there were two books, and it was it was common at the time even for Republicans to refer to themselves as progressives you know we were progressive republicans this is what they were calling themselves in the 1950s and you had certain elements of republicans that were fighting against it you had senator taft senator robert taft you had barry goldwater you had some others uh but in 1955 uh in, in response to this kind of uh executive dominance on the on the on the uh on the, on the national scale during the 1950s after harry truman a man by the name of Dean Acheson, who served as the Secretary of State under Harry Truman, published or released a book called A Democrat Speaks to His Party. That was 1955. In the following year, in response to that book, a Republican, I think, who served as under Secretary of State for Dwight Eisenhower, released a book titled A Republican Speaks to His Party. This was mm -hmm. 1956. If you line both those books up and you read them or sift, sift through them, again, they're almost indistinguishable from one another. Right. Wow. Right. And this was the 1950s. Wow. They yeah, were both like Republicans and Democrats were both kind of pursuing this progressive agenda mm. so simultaneously. Was, right. So there was a neocons. Go ahead. Neocons mm -hmm. back then. Um, go ahead. Yeah, well, we'll see, we'll see. Rashad, the thing about it is. The people who would be considered neocons during that period, I guess, I guess, I guess they were kind of like the neocons, but then the neocons to Trump, the 50s neocons was this new kind of Goldwater Reagan-esque era of Republicans that were, you know, considered to be the neocons, if you will, of the 1970s that were trying to pull, I guess, the Republican Party away from the center and I guess more to the mm -hmm. right. So, yeah, anyway. Um in regards to the abortion issue, I remember reading Margaret Sanger, I'm paraphrasing what she said, but she made a quote saying, you know, if blacks or Negroes ever get suspicious about, I guess, our agenda, you know, abortion yeah. and Planned Parenthood, it's the Negro minister who would be the mm -hmm. right person to, to, yeah, to straighten them out. So when Coretta Scott King accepted this award, I mean, w w were the Kings, were they pro-abortion? Well, the thing is, they, they didn't speak out against abortion and by virtue of them. I mean, and again, they weren't ignorant to what Margaret Sanger was all about. They weren't ignorant to what Planned Parenthood was all about. And so, you know, the, the fact of the matter is one can't uh, one can't justifiably argue that Martin Luther King himself was against abortion uh, by virtue of the fact that he accepted this award, knowing full well what margaret sanger was all about um it, that would have been a perfect opportunity for he or coretta scott to say look um, we appreciate the award um but at the same time we must make it known that we are against the annihilation of of black babies in the womb but they didn't they they lauded 
uh, Margaret Sanger for the great work that she's done and, and this that, and a third. I mean, again, like Chuck said, people can go and, and read uh, the acceptance um, speech of this award. And I think that tells people everything they need to know. But everything you know that Chuck said is absolutely right. When you look at Ro Robert LaFollette, um, who was a senator um, in the early part of the 20th century, he was a Republican. And he, for all intents and purposes, can be considered the Bernie Sanders of his day. Um, insofar that he was very socialist in his uh, political philosophy. Um, again, all throughout the 20th century, there was very little distinguishable difference between Republicans and Democrats uh, for crying out loud. When you look at the Civil Rights Act of 1964, without the support of the Republicans, you wouldn't have your Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, a lot of what has gone on over the course of the 20th century as far as america moving more and more closer to a socialist country has been done by democrats and republicans and this the reason for this is because we are at a point we have been at a point for a very long time where a person being a republican or democrat is not based in any kind of principled philosophy or understanding of what kind of government and what kind of country should we have? Uh, a person's political affiliation has more to do with what they can get out of being a Republican or a Democrat at a given time or their dislike or disdain for the quote unquote other side has nothing to do with principle, has nothing to do with um, understanding that, well, to the extent that we give the government this much power, uh, we are losing our freedoms. It has nothing to do with that one way or the other. And so whether Martin Luther King was a Republican or not, to me, doesn't matter when I know the history of the Republican Party. As Chuck said, um, uh, you know, eloquently earlier about how the Republican Party, even in the days of Abraham Lincoln, was run amok. It just mm. simply was. Mm -hmm. And we have now this kind of debate uh, as a result of what Nikki Haley said recently about slavery and whether or not slavery was the center point of the civil rights or not the civil rights, but the civil war, uh, even it, it was complex. Even back then, you had some who were part of the civil war in the South, part of the Confederacy, who didn't really care about slavery. They their you know, dog in the fight was for states rights. They generally just wanted states' rights. And you had others who were part of the Confederacy who wanted to prolong slavery. So it just mm -hmm. it was a matter of who you were asking. Mm -hmm. um, and so, again, we, we, we try to fit everything into a perfect little box where it just, you know, there's, this is the explanation. There's no other explanation. And we just let that be that. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I will say is, you know, when it comes to a person today in 2024 who calls himself a Republican or a conservative. They have to ask themselves, why? Why are you a Republican or a conservative? What is the basis of your conservatism? Do you, are you social, is it social issues? Is it economic issues? Uh, do you genuinely believe in the, in the philosophy of the Republic as a result, as a, as a, uh, opposed to a monarchy or a, you know, wh whatever the ca uh, democracy, whatever the case may be, like, what is the basis of your conservatism or of your being a Republican? 
Most people can't answer that question, unfortunately. But yeah. if you genuinely believe that you are a conservative, if you genuinely believe that you are someone who wishes to have a federal government that is very limited in its powers, who wishes to crack down on the bureaucracy, who wishes to maintain the sovereignty and the power of the local uh, government, which uh, gets its dictates from the people within that uh, within that local context. If that's genuinely something that you want, then you must reconsider who you call your heroes because Martin Luther King is antithetical to that idea. And I mm. tell people all the time, when it comes to this battle of Republicans and Democrats claiming Martin Luther King as their own, it is like a tug of war. And I tell you, if you are a conservative, let go of the rope and resolve to make other people your philosophical heroes or, or whatever the case may be. But you'll find fault even in those people, which leads me to say, you know, uh, you should get your principles from the Bible, from the gospel. Right. That should dictate how you see the world and the complexities of the world, because truth be told, the world is a very complex place. It just is. And to try to fit everything into a neat little packaged Republican versus Democrat, left versus right, I think um, to that end, we'll continue to uh, uh, wander around in this web of confusion. Yeah. Can I chime in before you jump in? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. I don't know about you guys. I'm, you know, I don't, I'm not really on a tight schedule. I know you, your shows don't run too long, but uh, don't feel the need to rush through because, you know, I'm I'm here for hours if you need me. But anyway, <laughs> um, like Chad said, you know, when people say that, you know, our, our, our society is founded upon biblical principles and this and that, you know, uh, just think about it in the, in the most broad, I guess, philosophical sense possible, uh, because our entire small our Republican system of checks and balances uh is of course predicated upon the uh the revealed truth of the bible which is that you know man man uh, we are fallen uh beings and so uh you have to have a, a a system of checks and balances in place in order to protect man uh from the 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 wicked impulses inherent in all men and the problem, just to go back, because I wanted to say something uh, earlier when you were talking about, you know, well, well, what, what were we supposed to do? You know, blacks were suffering. This was happening and that was happening. And again, it goes back to this idea of, you know, once again, states rights and, and, and local government rights, uh, because considering the, uh, the, the power and the influence of federal government, of course, you do not concentrate power at the point of the federal government because of those negative impulses inherent within all men can corrupt the entire society from the top down. Uh, you must, of course, uh, diffuse power horizontally or horizontally, and then vertically integrate it. Um, when, when Chad talks about states' rights, just another, as an aside, you know, and I don't want to unpack the Civil War, but, you know, Abraham Lincoln, even when he was campaigning leading up to 1860, he vowed that there would not be a war. And then depending upon, you know, whose historical perspective you pay attention to, it was, in fact, Abraham Lincoln who instigated the South into the attack at Fort, I think, Sumter is what it was. Mm -hmm. But anyway, not to unpack that. But um, even when it comes to slavery and when it comes to the issue of the civil rights movement, this is what I really want to get at, is that these un unjust laws um, were, uh, were, were, again, they were falling off the books. You see, it's one thing to say, well, we don't like the way blacks are being treated. Okay, I get it. But once again, the better question becomes, what is the proper way to go about 
fixing these perceived issues. Again, the, the 10th Amendment reads clearly, it says that, you know, uh, any power not delegated, delegated to the federal government by the United States Constitution or prohibited by the states is reserved for the states respectively. If you want to get Jim Crow off the books, you make an appeal to your local and state government. The federal government has no say so in the matter. So, uh, again, it, 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 it goes back to our understanding of history or lack thereof, because a lot of people, quite frankly, do not know what was going on prior to uh, the 1960s. We take that little flashpoint in time. If you want to, you know, start with the uh, 1955 bus boycott, you know, and fast forward the Selma March and all that stuff in 65. In, in the minds of so many people, that was the entire history of America from the end of the Civil War up to that point. And the reality is that that is not true because a lot of the racial strife and quite frankly, and I hate to use the term economic uh, inequality, I, 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 but anyway, <laughs> but yeah, but a lot of the economic inequality in these things, they were, you know, it, it, it was correcting itself. It was correcting itself due to the systemic, informal, but personal mechanisms like Andrew Johnson uh, uh, harped on, uh, harped on back then in the 1860s, thanks to the free market. The free market was was fixing the problems. And then once blacks and whites were becoming ever more familiar with one or, with one another through working together to fulfill a mutually beneficial task, even if that task is being pursued for selfish reasons, once you begin to, to have a healthy reliance upon someone else for your own provisions, well, then that is how respect is gained and as respect eventually becomes friendship. Friendship eventually becomes love and acceptance and so on and so forth. And then when society reaches a certain point, then you make an appeal to your legislatures. Right. So that if need be, they can implement laws that are in kind or, or in keeping with the moral compass or zeitgeist at the time of the society. But what happened with the civil rights movement is that we leapfrogged everything, got the entire process out of order and um, to society's detriment, un unfortunately, for, 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 uh, for many reasons. Yeah. Hmm. Um, you know, I've always said, I've always said like, you can't have a viable society if it's, if it's a truly racist society it, it won't be a, a viable one because right. you know people at the end of the day the average human being wants to make an income they want to live comfortable you know that that's a lot of people's main concern so if you so if people like are like genuinely to the core racist i mean it would make life so difficult for you to say hey i don't want to do business with the black man i'm just going to do business with this person you know then you're cutting into your income so on a practical level it just doesn't make sense, you know. Right, like um, like yeah, like a like a like right. a like a savings and loan company or a bank. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like they do themselves any favors by refusing to extend credit to credit worthy black applicants. It doesn't work that right. way. It hasn't worked. It doesn't work that way now, and it has never worked that way. Yeah, because I, I um, you know, yeah, I always look at it like I mean, you know, why why do people think that 
others are so concerned. You know, like when I hear some some black people talk, it's like no nobody is thinking about you that much. You know, like nobody is sitting around thinking like I have to hold a black man down because I just, you know, their melanin really concerns me. And I just, you know, got to do something, you know. Hey, people believe that, though. People really believe that. No, I, I know. I know. It's There's just, black folks that believe that about white folks is what I mean to say. But, right, yeah. right. Yeah. It's like nobody's really thinking about that. The average person is just trying to get by in their daily life. It's right. not that serious. Um, a few more things. Sure. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, bro. You you got a question? Yeah. I want to address one thing, but if you got a question, go ahead. Well, I was gonna move on to um, some some issues about pe people saying that Martin Luther King was a plagiarist, and okay. I was gonna also touch on some personal activities I was reading from an FBI file about the whole you know um, infidelity issue. But okay. um, yeah, what, what what do you guys? What's your take on the whole um, plagiarism issue? Uh Go ahead, go ahead, Chad. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll try to make my statement brief. Uh, but yeah, he was absolutely a plagiarist. I mean, his whole um, uh, dissertation that he wrote uh, to even become uh, a doctorate recipient was plagiarized. And not only that, you know, it, it's interesting whenever I'm sharing the information that I shared with you, not only on this podcast, but on the last time that you had me on. When I share that information with people, ever so often I'll get uh, the comment from an academic or a scholar who says, well, Chad, you're wrong. Martin Luther King didn't have a, a proclivity to or a liking of communism because he said so himself. And they'll proceed to quote uh, a chapter from a book called Where Do We Go From Here? I think that was the one, if I'm not mistaken. But in it, he talks about communism and how he can't be a communist because he's a Christian and Christian and communism is antithetical to Christianity is that and the third. But if you read that, that uh, chapter, you'll, you'll, you'll find that it even is plagiarized from a piece written by one Robert McCracken, Robert J. McCracken. And so my question to, to the person who pushes back against me is to say, you know, if if Martha King was genuinely anti-communist, then why would he use someone else's words and try to pass them as his own to distance himself from communism? If, if you genuinely was anti-communist, wouldn't you say so in your own words with passion, with vigor? Why, why would you have to plagiarize somebody else? And, and use what they said as, as your thing and not credit that person. Uh, uh, you know what I mean? Like, like the, I mean, it, it would be one thing if, you know, he borrowed some word from McCracken and said, this is what McCracken said. And I agree. Like, no, you plagiarize this man and try to pretend that these words were your own. To me, that's a very lazy way of distancing yourself from communist ideology it's just as if he like you know what let, he said something okay let me put that in here and, and there's you know this is my take on communism mm -hmm. and the fact of the matter is everything else, else that he did and said demonstrates that he was in fact partial to communist ideology it doesn't matter what you said in that book what matters mm -hmm. to me is everything else that you're doing with your legs and saying with your mouth um, and so a, a lot of the speeches that he gave were written not by him, but by Clarence B. Jones, who uh, had some loose connections with 
communist uh, organizations uh, was written by Stanley Levison, who was the treasurer for a communist front group in New York and also had ties to the Communist Party. And Bayard Rustin, who was a part of the Communist Youth League as a youngster and never, never really um, left uh, uh, communist efforts uh, in his career, in his long career. And so if you're getting all of your information from people who are communists, if you are um, plagiarizing other folks so as to make yourself look like something else that goes back into the deception piece earlier that you were asking about, um, all that to say that Martin Luther King was a concoction. He wasn't genuine. He wasn't um, he wasn't someone who is a person of integrity that deserves the kind of enshrinement and praise that we uh, lavish him with to this very day where, you know, this coming Monday, you'll have a lot of people who are celebrating him, who are worshiping him. You'll have a lot of, of um, news reporters who are saying today we commemorate a great man who was the moral leader of the 20th century. He wouldn't be enjoying all of this without the deception that he um, was part of, which included uh, plagiarism, uh, the, the large body of plagiarism that he, that he, uh, mm. that he uh, used. So um, a few more things before. Oh, go ahead, Chuck. No, I was gonna say I don't. I don't really have much more to add to that. It's, it's funny when, when you know people still deny it, even uh, you know mainstream. Uh, the mainstream, you know, popular uh, convention acknowledges this. Of course, they excuse him for it, just the same way they, uh, you know, excuse away his uh, extramarital activity. But yes, Dr. King's plagiarism isn't something that is even remotely controversial. Even again, if you go to uh, you know, mainstream academic sources, you know, just the, the whole wider uh, institution of, uh, you know, higher academia uh, and the intelligentsia, they acknowledged, they they acknowledged even to this day that uh, Dr. King did, you know, play fast and loose with his, you know, citations and things of that nature. And yes, you know, he was in fact a plagiarist and, and just to also piggyback just on what, Bl uh, not, I almost called you Blanche, Chad, but Chad said, um, yeah, just about, you know, the, this this denial, how you know and how, you know, this and that. I mean, and Chad is right. I mean, how does someone who claims to be this, you know, I'm so anti-communist, but yet, you know, everywhere you look, you're surrounded by this one and that one. I mean, someone who considers themselves to be a Christian, um, you know, again, why would you, uh, you know, gallivant around with the likes of men like Stokely Carmichael if you're such this Christian? Right. Um, why in the world would, uh, again, you know, someone who's, you know, known communist ties like a Stanley Levison, you know, someone in the viral rest, even another one of Dr. King's uh, close personal aides who helped organize and fundraise for the March on Washington was another communist, a black man by the name of Jack O'Dell. Mm -hmm. uh, again, everywhere you look, there's a communist here, there's a communist there, there's a communist everywhere, you know, like a Dr. Seuss rhyme, you know, and so, <laughs> uh, yeah, but, you know, Dr. He's the only one. He's just yeah. standing there again and, and, and in his rhetoric and what he was pushing for and what he was pursuing, uh, again, this whole redistributive justice, this economic justice and these various things, uh, these, these, these lofty, you know, wild, you know, nebulous terms. 
one of the key pieces of legislation we also we don't talk about enough when we talk about the civil rights act of 1964 was a uh, bill that was passed into law and signed by lyndon b johnson in that same year i believe the month was august of 1964 called the economic opportunity act right. again this was all part of this whole progressive this whole you know reinforcement if you will of all of fdr's uh you know a uh, a uh, uh, new deal new new deal ideas and in, uh, in the 1960s and again you know uh i even hear republicans even nowadays talk about how far we've gone how far the overton window has moved to the left that someone like a jfk would be a republican today let me just say this and you talked about you know you brought up the whole democrat republican thing just full disclosure i vote republican and the reason why I do so is simple. It's not complicated <laughs> at all. It's quite simple. I don't know if I should be ashamed to say this, but it reminds me of something that the great Dr. Thomas Sowell says when he taught when he when he asks the question in one of his essays, he poses the, the question to himself and answers. He says that I ask myself as a country, are we headed toward collapse? Are we headed towards oblivion in the United States? And he says, my answer, unfortunately, is yes. He says, but the only good news is it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and the way things work are that nothing is inevitable until it is. So unfortunately, the only the, the key selling point of the Republican Party as of right now is the fact that they're simply going in the exact same direction as the left. They're just going slower. So unfortunately, when we vote Republican, we're simply just buying ourselves a little bit more time. And I'm not right. saying that that's not the smart <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> if you ask me, you know, if you say, uh, you bang the guy, we'll give you the death penalty. You want to go usher you out to the gallows now and hang you or you yeah. want to hang around for a couple mm -hmm. more years? I think I want to mm -hmm. hang out for a couple, hang around for a little while, you know. But you have no, you have no illusions about the Republican. But I have no illusions about what savior of the Republican. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. what's going I, on. Yes, yeah, but lesser, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's the two evils argument. I mean, I've always countered that with um, voting for some some third party candidates. That because you know people, I, I get into these discussions often, and people when I tell them that I'm voting for this candidate who's a third party candidate, like let's say maybe um, someone with the Constitution Party who lines up with all of my values, and people right. say, "Oh, that you're wasting your vote, wasting your vote," and, yeah. and then I say, <laughs> "Well." No, I'm not. I, well, I ask, why do you say that? And they say, oh, because nobody's going to vote for them. They're not going to win. Well, how do you win? Oh, you got to vote for them. So why don't you vote for them? You see? So if we support them, they can actually win. But nobody wants to support them. So ultimately, ultimately, Rashad, I'm sorry to cut you off, but ultimately the problem isn't so much the politicians. We have we've allowed this to occur. Right. The citizens. And I, again, you know, because there, there's been a ceaseless assault you know, on our minds and on our and on our spirits, quite frankly. And, you know, the people with the uh, wherewithal to go to government at whatever level. Right. And say that, you know, I'm going to uh, restore freedom. Right. Give it back to the to the people, you know, shut down the bureaucracy. Right. We're going to bust up the teachers unions. We're going to, you know, do this and do that. We aren't going to implement laws to, quote unquote, fix things. We're going to repeal laws so that you can fix them on your own. And whatever else, you know, people with the wherewithal and, and the in the requisite integrity to do such a thing, to go to government, 
so as not to claim more power for themselves, but to really, really return that power back to the people, those individuals wouldn't dare run for office. And the reason being because it goes back to the old cliche of when the teacher or when the student is ready, the master will appear. No mm. one is willing to put themselves up mm. for that kind of you know thing when they pretty much know that the people aren't going to to vote for me because they're not in line with the way I yeah. think. So why waste my time? Yeah. Who in the heck is going to vote? You know, I go back to something Thomas Sowell said again. He said that no politician has ever been elected by telling the people no. Yeah. And I, why in the I'm heck would I run? I said, I'm not, you know, you know what are you going to do to fix the economy? Well, it's not, it's, it's not my job to fix the economy. That's your job. Are you going to get up off your lazy behind and <laughs> interact with people? Are you going to do something? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, I don't know what you know, you know. So who's gonna down. vote for that guy? Yeah, it, it boils down to <laughs> So that guy, that guy doesn't run, that guy stays at home. Right. Yeah. I think um I don't know if it was Thomas Jefferson. I don't know if he said this, but he said you've never you've never had a, a society that that um or a people that were ignorant and free at the same time. That's right. Um, That's right. Do you remember the question you were gonna ask for sure? Yeah, I, think I, I was had. actually um before we wrap up, I was actually gonna talk about I don't wanna get too scandalous. But I'm just bringing this up because, you know, we're taught that MLK was a, a Christian pastor and um, this is the image we're presented. But there was an FBI file that was released in, I think, 2017, 2018. I think Trump declassified these JFK files. Um, a lot of people were upset with him because he didn't release the full thing. But the portions that did come out had some uh, information about King and um, the the file that I'm reading from, it's a federal Federal Bureau of Investigation subject, Martin Luther King Jr., a current analysis date, uh, March 12th, 1968. And um, on, I think it was page 19, it talks about King's personal conduct. Um, I'll just read a quick portion of it. It says, with the funds that he had received from the Ford Foundation, um, the Ford Foundation, they have a lot of questionable activity. Um, King- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, King held the first of two workshops in Miami, Florida in February 1968 to train Negro ministers in urban leadership. One Negro minister in attendance later expressed his disgust with the behind the scenes drinking, fornication and homosexuality that went on at the conference. Several Negro and white prostitutes were brought in from the Miami area. An all-night sex orgy was held with these prostitutes and some of the delegates in attendance. One room had a large table in, in it, which was filled with whiskey. Two Negro prostitutes were paid $50 to put on a sex show uh, for entertainment of the guests, a variety of sex acts, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it it, talk, it goes into some preview, um, previous sexual activities. And I, there's a book that I got a few years ago called Marxianity by Brandon House. I don't know if you guys heard of this. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, he talks about that. Yeah, he talks about that as well. Um, there's a portion that he wrote about King and he says that the wire wiretapping triggered by King's communist associations ended up in revealing other troubling truths about King. Uh, it was revealed in 2017. The wiretappings picked up King organizing sex parties so graphic, I wouldn't describe him here, but um, he says that Jackie Kennedy was so revolted by what she learned of King's behavior through the wiretappings that she could hardly look at King without disgust. Um, mm. So that's it. That's a rich coming from her. But considering who we we'll go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, again, I'm not 
everybody has flaws, you know, everybody has a past, but you know, when I read that, it's just, it, it transforms or just uh, demolishes my whole perception or it did when I, when I read it. And so I'm wondering, Monday, we have this, this holiday. How is it that we've gone so long or some people may be asking or watching this and saying, how have we been propagandized so strongly? How could the deception be this strong and continue to be this strong? Because if you talk to somebody on the street, the average person on the street, they know nothing about this. How is the propaganda so strong? Go ahead, chat. I'm gonna go. <laughs> um, no, I'm just, I, you know, I feel like I talk yeah. last. I can't remember if I talk last. No, so you're asking how can the uh, propaganda? Well, and, yeah, for the average person, so strong. Yeah, for the average person. Again, like the, the fact is, um, all of the all of the youngsters that I know today, um, here in my little corner of Texas, um, they they do believe that uh, they do believe the deception and or they they do believe that we have been deceived as a country when it comes not only to the civil rights movement but also when it comes to you know fill in the blank whether it be feminism whether it be the current kind of lgbt kind of agenda like they believe that all of this stuff is possible and is in fact happening. Uh, whereas most of the people who have gone to public schools here in America, um, they're a little bit more difficult of a code to crack. And that goes to, once again, as I alluded to earlier, how part of the deception is the fact that we are indoctrinated by our public education system to be susceptible to social justice movements, to uh, be to, to have a kind of natural, innate um, connection with a civil rights movement or a social justice movement or whatever the case may be. And so even to the extent that we find out or figure out the fact that these people aren't who we've been you know, trained to believe they are, it still doesn't resonate with us because what we convince ourselves of is this is this notion that or this idea rather that even if these things are true it doesn't take away from the fact that they still good, did good things or it doesn't take away from the idea that well so what he liked communism or marxism it was the only way that we could have some kind of freedom in this country for blacks and other people of color and so we 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 have been conditioned in such a way that we try to find ways to justify what we already have been taught is truth namely that people like Martin Luther King are these heroes that we must hold in high regard anytime there's some kind of race issue in the country, that's not even a race issue you can't you can't you can't um objectively say that the whole George Floyd thing was that you had anything to do with race. You can't objectively say that Mike Brown had anything to do with race or any of the other more recent things that have happened over, you know, in the last 10 years. You can't say that these things have anything to do with race, but when they do happen, 
Um, and you have the pundits and the news reporters who come out of the woodworks and opine. They always bring it back to Martin Luther King because they hold him as the standard. We've been conditioned to hold him as the standard. So again, um, to the question of how can we be so deceived? You can be deceived if the hegemony is such to where everything is moving in one direction. And, and, and that's by design. When you look at who is behind the, um, the very existence of a, you know, department of education and, and, you know, the whole nine, when you look at the fact that these things were instituted for the very reason of centralizing and collectivizing people into a certain uh, way of thinking, uh, it begins to make sense how the deception can, can uh, be so elaborate and so systematic to the, to the, to the point where public opinion is dependent on, uh, on the existence of this, of this hegemony, if that makes sense. Um, and that, that, that's, that's the, that's the lock and loaded answer that I have to such a question is that, you know, everything is designed and, and put into place in such a way that, you know, the, the whole point is to keep deceptions like this alive. Um, now I say that while at the same time, not being somebody who gets so caught up in who the man behind the curtain is, that it's going to affect how I live and, and the amount of sleep I get at night. I still sleep fine at night, knowing that you have such sinister people who are the proverbial man behind the curtain, because at the end of the day, the onus of me is on me, as it says, and the final uh, words of Ecclesiastes to fear God and keep his commands for this is the whole duty of man. And so my, like I can live a life of joy and of doing what I've been uh, born into this world to do as a believer in Christ. I can do that even though I do live in a world where you have these kind of sociologists and these kind of social en engineers and these activists and other nefarious people who are who are desperately trying to shape society in the way that they want to see it go. Uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't affect my life in this way, but it, it is also important for me to, to play the prophet, so to speak, um, to warn people, Hey, this is what's happened historically. This is what continues to happen to this very day. So they don't, so, you know, lest they be deceived by new social justice movements to come, which again are meant to, expand the role of the government in this kind of globalist quest for power um while at the same time usurping your rights as a free citizen in the west mm. right yeah because no and uh <clears throat> everything chad said is correct of course and uh, i just like to just get particular and just add another caveat like we spoke about education earlier there's this um what do they call it? They call it matching funds or a fund, you know, a fund matching. I know matching funds is what, what it's called. And what it is, is pretty much how, you know, the federal government has acquired the ability to pretty much uh, blackmail the states for funding because, you know, you have these completely irrelevant, just useless, as matter, just dangerous, quite frankly, uh, institutions like the Department of Education. And they sit on high, right? And they look down at the, you know, um, these, 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 like Chad mentioned, the public schools. Uh, and they say, well, if you 
don't have a sufficient amount of this going on or if this is not happening in your curriculum or that's not happening in your curriculum and so on and so forth then you know you have to curtail your curriculum to fit the uh the 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 agenda of the federal government or else you know you will be denied funding and this and that and so you know you have the state legislatures who will not refuse who, who will not refuse federal funding with those conditions that they implement an educational curriculum that suits the federal government because many of them see it as a form of political suicide and so you, you can see how dangerous this is and the reason why they see it as a form of political suicide is because the state has already collected the taxes from their own uh, uh, citizens or, or, or those residents in the state. They've already taxed them. And so the, 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 the federal government then collects these taxes from the states that it then uh, 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 collects a kind of brokerage fee or processing fee, if you will, to then redistribute the monies that they had that they took from the states in the first place. So the state, the states are merely getting a smaller portion of the money back that they put into this collective pot that was then uh, or, or what was decided to do with the monies that was collected from the states was the federal government. And so you have the federal government implementing, again, this, this statist ideology because they want to groom society and groom citizens in such a way that they then, when they become, you know, parenthetically speaking, functional adults, right, they lean heavily on the uh, state for their daily bread. So teach mm. them to become dependent upon the state. Use their tax monies to teach them how to become more dependent uh, upon us. And uh, that's just like one small aspect of it. Because even when you're talking about, you know, school and education, uh, one of the the uh, the key uh, points uh, was uh, these various colleges of education. And this is where the left, the neo-communist left in the 1960s and 70s, who were, um, you know, uh, 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 they many of them uh, remained in college in order to avoid uh in order to avoid the draft and, and not just because they were just cowards who were afraid of war you know they pretty much stayed in college again for ideological reasons but many of them focused in on these various colleges of education because they thought that they could influence a larger right swath of the general population if many of these activists became teachers it isn't so much that well you go into this one particular field but if you go if you go to a college of education and you educate the teachers who educate the students then you can affect more change in that way propagandize the teachers who then propagandize the students if there aren't enough of us to get to the masses of people but less radicalize the teachers and then yeah. you couple that with this idea of interdisciplinary how do they, how do they say it interdisciplinarity right mm -hmm. which is 
uh, you know, these these folks who, again, specialize in this one particular thing, but they feel as though to get a broader understanding of that particular thing, right, they must incorporate other disciplines in order to better understand, for example, how to be a judge or how to be a lawyer. So instead of specializing in law, you take this inter interdisciplinarian type of uh, or, or interdiscipline type uh, 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 pedagogy or, 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 or method, so to speak. And now you are using your position as a judge to implement a certain agenda based upon your rudimentary understanding of mm. something like psychology and sociology. Gotcha. That's not yeah. the goal. That's not what a judge is supposed to do. But uh, again, yeah. you know, many of them are using whatever their little small little the field in which they are supposed to specialize in and they're implementing other kinds of uh, uh, things and, yeah. and, and factors again in order to to, right. to implement right. implement this. this, this Athena Appecker, Angela mm-hmm. Davis, Howard Zinn, mm-hmm. all these people turned out to be educators who are teaching teachers mm-hmm. and teaching teachers are yep. going out and yeah. Right. I heard uh, Frank Turk. He said, um, you know, everybody's a disciple. Or I think someone he had on the show said uh, everybody is a disciple. The question is, who's discipling you? Who's doing the discipling? You know, right. we're all disciples. Right. But uh, yeah, right. when you, you talked about the state earlier. You know, it always goes back when it when it goes back to the state and the state. We look to the state as being God that at, it, at its root, in my opinion, is synonymous with yeah. with Marxism. Um, yeah, and my last. I, I want to make one more point before before you close out because it looks like you're about to close out soon there's a lot of people you know who were who were warning against the dangers of implementing the civil rights act you know those are those people turned out to be right because what ended up happening was later on down the line we really began to see that this was not allowing blacks to move about freely in the society it was about finding ways to give them a leg up uh even if you know when, when it came to the supreme court uh case of griggs versus du power in 1971 you also had another supreme court case that was even more ridiculous when you talk about judicial activism in the name of title seven of the 1964 civil rights act was a case called uh, u.s steel workers versus weber where you know weber felt as though he was you know denied uh, a membership uh to the to the guild or, or to the union because you know he was white but the court decided that according it's funny how they want to play this game of 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 of, of textualism when they want to uh when it came to the 1964 civil rights act that the wording of the law was was specifically meant to alleviate uh pre-existing uh or, or racial conditions that disenfranchised african-americans so in so many words you can be discriminated against under the 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 uh, uh statute of the 1964 civil rights act because as a white person the law wasn't meant to apply to you and you again you can read the decision and and you know how the highfalutin you know legalese that they speak with but what it all boils down to is that and you know when it comes to that you don't have the right to discriminate against a person based on their race it doesn't apply to a white person if by not discriminating against a white person it reinforces 
pre-existing racial inequalities that the act was meant to solve. Mm. And so we're just pretty much a law that allows for this kind of quote unquote reverse discrimination as they like to call it. Yeah. Teach them, Chuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> last, last question. So do you think that the message that's being taught in churches across America in terms of when you go to church, you're hearing the pastor preach the gospel. A lot of times the, the, the pastor, yes, he's supposed to preach the gospel. Some people are walking away with um, not necessarily getting daily application or finding, finding out how the gospel is applied to what's going on in culture. And I'm asking this because when I talk to some people about the issues, these are church going people. They often, they don't know about the information that we're talking about today. And they're, some of them are supporting causes that are again, contrary to biblical values. So, you know, I, I have friends and family that, that would say they're Christian, they love Jesus, but they would support Joe Biden and they don't see anything wrong with his ideology on gender. You know, they would say, oh, well, God loves everybody. Everybody's God's child. So my question is, is the God, is, are the pastors in the church, is the teaching translating into people's, I guess, daily, um, or, or teaching people how to look at the world? Or is it not translating in a sense? Like, so are people really walking away from the church saying, well, this isn't, this is contrary to what my church is teaching me every Sunday. So why am I supporting this? Do you, do you guys find that there's a disconnect in the church? There's, there's a huge disconnect. And the fact is, just yesterday, I listened to two Martin Luther King sermons. These were sermons that were delivered to a church congregation. And what he did in those sermons is the same as what a lot of pastors, unfortunately, do today. Namely, he started off uh, with a couple of verses from the word, and then he proceeded to take a little piece of that scripture and make it mean something that had nothing to do with what the scripture was communicating to then make a point about racist America and how there will be a reckoning for this wicked racist country. And, and again, there's no uh, calling on the congregation to repent. There's no, you know, uh, uh, re-emphasizing the fact that now that you are saved, now that you have acknowledged uh, the work of Christ on the cross as being a, uh, a, a perpetuation for your sins, you must now choose this day forward to follow Christ, to make him your Lord. It's not enough for him to be your savior. He must now be your individual Lord. There was none of that. Once again, it was look at how this country is doing and look at how they're fighting in Vietnam and look at how this and look at how that. So so again, the onus is on society in the country who may or may not be Christians more so than the congregation who have professed a faith in Christ. And so what Martha King was doing, once again, is the same thing that many churches, unfortunately, teach today. Uh, they use this kind of spiritually tinged rhetoric so as to uh reinforce this notion that i am a, a pastor i am a reverend uh, i am authoritative in this church 
and people believe because of this that they are hearing a word from God or hearing a word of God. And they never stop to ask themselves a question, is what the pastor is saying in keeping with the scriptures? Is what the pastor is saying, uh, you know, is there fidelity to the scriptures? And so because they make the uh, the central figure of their faith what the pastor is saying, more so than Christ, uh, it's for this reason that you get a lot of things that are happening in the culture, in society, with the DNC or the RNC. And people uh, don't have a frame of reference from which to judge is what I'm seeing in the culture um, something that God would would um, say is an abomination or is it something that is in keeping with God's word? And so this is the reason why a lot of folks, unfortunately, who go to church every Sunday will say, well, yeah, we're supposed to love everybody. Of course, we, you know, I'm supportive of LGBT because we're supposed to love everybody because they have no idea that the fact of the fact that in the Bible, it says that, you know, those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. It, it says that in the scriptures, black and in black and white, but people, they don't have any idea of this because even though they go to church, they don't read the scriptures for themselves. And the pastor isn't shepherding them in the way uh, of the of the word. And so because the pastor is not saying anything that is in keeping with the scriptures, the pastor is, is more ready and more quick to condone this dark and dying culture than mm. to speak on how we must ourselves navigate this 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 dark and dying culture, namely that we are following Holy Spirit, that we are following the Christ, even in the midst of it. Uh, again, people have no frame of reference. And so I do know people personally, and this is true even of myself, who, although I did grow up in a church where the pastor was more of a civil, uh, a, a social justice activist than he was um, a man of God, although that's the context in which I grew up, it wasn't until I started reading the scriptures for myself and being challenged for what the Bible actually says that I had to make a decision as to continue to be, to believe and move in the direction that I've been going or to choose to repent and choose a state to follow Christ. I had to make that decision and I, and I believe I made the right decision. And I know other people who have made the right decision when confronted with the truth of what the scriptures actually say. Uh, yeah. But unfortunately, a lot of people, uh, they don't want to, um, they don't want to do the work yeah. of actually looking in the mirror of the scripture and ask themselves, Am I following the decrees of what God himself said, or am I rebelling against what God says while at the same time, you know, uh, falsely believing that I'm one of his remnant? Yeah. So it does require work. I always say Christianity is not a lazy man's religion. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Fellas, this was great. I think both of you guys need to write some books. I think, um, man, when I hear you guys, you know, you guys are like the next the thought leaders, the, the baton needs to be handed to you. Seriously. Um, your show, you want to plug any of your stuff shows anything? Uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, every Sunday Chad or Jackson's, well, I guess Chad could say this part, <laughs> but no, I just, uh, you know, I just have a YouTube channel. Um, you know, my name is uh, Chuck Littleton, um, Forceman. Name of my birth certificate is Charles, of course, you know, common for people who 
whose name Charles to be nicknamed Chuck. That's what most people call me. My friends call me. But, you know, my uh, YouTube channel is called Teach Him Chuck. Uh, another friend of mine, he, you know, gave me that nickname. So I just ran with it. Uh, yeah, I have my own YouTube channel. I'm just trying to grow it, you know, get my subscribers up there. Um, I'm over a little over a thousand now. I don't have a ton because I don't post a lot of content. I, you know, I post a lot of long form, uh, two, two hour plus long, um, you know, discussions or, or talks. I, I try not to call them lectures because I don't want to, you know, think too highly of myself, but yeah, I post these long and it takes me hours and hours and hours to prepare you know notes and things of that nature so i don't get to post much because it takes a lot of work but yeah i'm on a youtube channel teach him chuck we'll check it out um just recently i did a um i did a three three part um series on uh, barack obama i just uploaded the uh third installment of that um a few weeks ago you know, you can go and uh, check that out, you know, on yeah. my YouTube channel. Um, and aside from that, um, I'm on Chad o. Jackson's YouTube channel every Sunday. We do a show <clears throat> called Cutting Through the Culture, 7.30 Eastern Time. It's, I think, 6. What is it? What, what, you're an hour behind me, Chad, in Texas? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So 7.30 Eastern Time. So you guys yeah. figure out what time is on your end if you want to check that out. Me, Chad o. Jackson, and two other um, panelists. Keisha King, you may have seen her on television, mm -hmm. and uh, our friend uh, Blanchard Robinson, Absolutely. the four of us. So, yeah. Absolutely. You're not getting this on MSNBC, CNN, Fox, whatever. <laughs> so, but, uh, <laughs> thanks a lot, fellas, for being in touch. Hope to do a part two. Um, definitely want to talk about Malcolm. So, uh, God bless. Oh, yeah. oh, man, bring, 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 us, bring me back or bring us back anytime, man. A dynamic yeah. duo, Chuck and Chad, you know, just put the sig back signal up and we come running. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, Chad, Chad is Batman. I'm, 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 I'm Robin. I'm, I'm the sidekick. No, I'll tell you. <laughs> Absolutely, God Chad. Bless. You want to plug your your films or anything you're doing, man? Yeah, we um uh, did Uncle Tom, which is a documentary that released in 2020. Uh, Uncle Tom Two, which was released in 2022, and we are about to start production um, for part three of that film. Uh, we're also working on a film uh, called Comrade Yuri uh, about the um, the information that was revealed by when Yuri Bezmenov in 1984. Mm. Uh, we had the privilege of going to California and sitting down with G. Edward Griffin, and um, he gave a lot of of insight into not only the whole G, uh, Yuri Bezmenov uh, interview, but also a lot of things as it relates to um, social justice and deception and all the things that we talked about in this uh, interview this, this yeah. afternoon. Um, so yeah, excited about that film. Uh, Comrade Yuri is actually going to be coming out before uncle Tom three. So, oh, um, but yeah, apart from that, you can find me on, Instagram and YouTube. I think that's where I post the most, yeah. uh, as opposed to X, uh, formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> um, do a little stuff over there, but all those platforms uh, at Chad O. Jackson. Absolutely. Keep going, fellas. Thank you for your time today. Bless God, you. God bless. Anytime. Anytime.